Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Season 3 of Stages Podcast, where we continue to bring creation and connection to center stage. We want to say thank you to Charlie Schwartz. Hey, girl. Hey, you won. Charlie, you're a winner. Charlie and Schwartz. And we're a winner because you listen and you reviewed and you gave us five stars. Five stars. Then a little fun fact, ML, that when I was younger, for as long as I can remember, every single Teddy, lovey, stuffed animal, guess what I named it? Charlie. Yes, Charlie. <laughs> I named them all Charlie. It was an easy guess. I know, I know, I did, but I set you up really well. I'm not sure why there wasn't a Charlie in our family or anything mm. like that, but um, so I have a deep connection with our winner. Thank you, you Charlie. Remember, do you remember the 70s perfume, Charlie? <gasps> of course. Do you remember that commercial? I so wished that I was named Charlie after that commercial. Well, I always wanted a uh, a female identifying name, but I wanted a male identifying nickname. So yeah. call me Samantha, and then I'm Sam. Sam. I know yeah. Charlotte. I love that give too. me Charlie. Francis, call totally. me Frankie. Yeah, love I it. wanted I to be that. That's what I wanted too, but you really couldn't do that with Mary Lee. No, the closest Except- you could do was ML. Doesn't work. That's what I give you. Yeah. And Seb, once I told him that, he's like, "Oh, it's in there." And he calls me now Finn, Stephanie, oh, Stephanie. I know you told me that before. I and that's sweet. That. Finn, yeah, that's I a like good being one. Finn. Well, let's read Charlie's review, shall we? Mm-hmm. Okay. Charlie, the he- first of all, it's five stars. Thank you, Charlie. Five stars. We recommend uh-huh. five stars. And the headline is absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. I look forward to this podcast every single week. The guests and the conversations that take place are fantastic. I highly recommend. The only uh-huh. problem I have with this review, though, Charlie, I'm sorry, one of your favorite. One, yeah. Charlie. Yeah. Come the on hairs now. on the back of my neck stood up when I felt it when I heard Charlie. that. Not one of. Come on. But All thank right. you, Charlie, and thank you everybody for listening. Today's guest is a producer and entrepreneur. As a producer, she won Tony Awards for The Inheritance and Company. She also helped bring us Funny Girl and American in Paris, Carousel, Dames at Sea, Head Over Heels, Hughie, and Indecent. Recently, she conceived and produced I'm Still Here, a celebration for the Billy Rose Theater Division at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. It featured theatrical archive materials, interviews with Broadway's best, and reimagined musical numbers with hundreds of artists. Her marketing company, Boardman Productions, has worked with top brands, including Nike, Vogue, Maybelline, Samsung, Game of Thrones, I love Game of Thrones, and Disney. This remarkable woman took 14 years in marketing experience. She combined it with her extensive knowledge of Broadway. She whipped it together with her years of experience on way too many advisory boards that I'm going to list here, and then (laughs) added a dash of brilliance and passion. And what did she get? The Museum of Broadway. Mm. It debuted in November of 2022. Please welcome this remarkable and way too young person to have accomplished all of this, Julie Boardman. Julie Boardman to stage. Julie, can we have you to stage, please? Yay. And I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. And this may seem insignificant, but to me, it holds such great weight. As we know, you know, social media is kind of our eye into everybody's life. What I honor about you, Julie, is that you use the platform to really just amplify the true meat and potato work that you do. Like there's always merit and quality and realism to whatever you post in an age where so much is sensationalized Mm. and just made us to believe that there is something tangible there, but really it's just the magic of social media. Mm -hmm. And you are not that. I just want to applaud you for that. Truly. Thank you both. Now I'm going to (laughs) cry. No, no, no. But here's what Um, I want to ask you. Did you come from a really type A, highly producing kind of family? Because you have accomplished so much. And I've listened to a little bit of your talks that you've given to schools and things like that that were on YouTube. And 
you're kind of fearless. You were fearless to have this zigzag path, fearless to try anything or ask anybody questions. You started out as an actress and you were in shows and then you decided, nope, that's not for me at such a young age and then moved into something else. And it's like, I sort of believe sometimes that we we know what our destiny is and when we follow our gut and zig instead of zag when everybody else is zagging, you learn the lessons that you need to get you there. And that's what it seems like you've been tapped into for a long time. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, well, I have so many things to say in response to what you just said, but one in New York, like when you're on the right path, you run into a bunch of people on the street that, you know, and when you're like not on the right path, you never see anyone. Mm. So anyway, I kind of, yeah, I definitely like zig and zag. My parents are both entrepreneurs. And so I guess I've always kind of had that um, in me or seen them. Um, My mom's like a computer programmer, like at a time when women didn't really do that. So I don't know, they've always just like encouraged me. And I started performing when I was five. I was a huge you know, fan of, of musical theater, especially Stephanie. I don't know if you know this. Um, I was in the young Americans also. <laughs> okay. How did I miss that? <clears throat> Give me your years. When were you in the young Americans? Uh, I was a new kid in 97. We just missed each other. Yeah. We just, yeah. well, no, no, no. That's a fib because I was a, uh, my new kid year, I think was 1987. Yeah. So we're a decade apart. That's not just, we got to put just in quotes, y'all. Um, <laughs> I hope it was as great an experience for you as it was for me. I enjoyed it thoroughly and learned a ton, a yeah, ton. And I think the training and um, kind of some of the methodologies and it's very much like make it work, figure it yeah, out. Yeah, that's right. And like, let them lead and, you know, these kind of things that have um, probably, you know, very much stuck with me. So we have that in common. Yeah. And then I moved to New York. I worked at a record label um, and then went with my roommate on an audition for 42nd Street and booked the national tour and did that. I feel like I'm a bit disruptive in like a good way, hopefully, Mm -hmm. Um, where when there's like a hole that I end up seeing for whatever reason, um, I try to fill it or, or figure something out or just ask a lot of questions too. And that might come from my mom because when she a little bit of a tangent, but on her computer programming, like she didn't set out to do that, but she, it turned out she took it as like an elective and in school and her teacher, she was just really good at it, but she was like an art student and her teacher thought she was cheating. (laughs) And she was like, (laughs) she was asking so many questions and then she like aced everything. And, um, and she's always just really encouraged me to ask questions and try to figure out different ways to approach things and answers. And yeah, my parents are fantastic and, you know, love the arts. as Well, what it seems like is that you're this wonderful and kind of rare combination of very artistic and creative, but also business-minded. You can have that very linear, very detail-oriented business mind. And I think the combination of that is rare and really, really powerful. And that's how you end up opening museums, right? I think it's very rare. I mean, you know, we call it show business and usually it's binary. You're either the show part or you're the business part. I now at my age have learned to wear many different hats. But when I was younger, that sort of difference between the show and the business, it allowed me to go, "Eh, okay, then I'm just all artsy and I'm all show and I will close my eyes or trust my representation or trust the producers and I can just stay in my lane and be artsy fartsy. It wasn't until much later that I went, oh, no, no, no. I'm the CEO of my own industry and I have got to wear both hats or else this is never going to lean toward my favor. It just is never going to lean. But to ride the wave uh, at the same time, the way you're doing, I agree with ML. It is very, very rare. Do you Uh, find joy, the similar amount of joy on both sides of the show and the business? Yeah. I mean, there's certain parts that I think I love even more, right? Like even in just in the museum, uh, Diane, my partner and I, the parts that were so fun to do were like stuff like the creative piece of like designing. We were figuring out the story we were telling, how it was being presented, 
Um, like, yeah, the designing piece of it was really fun. Like what it would look like finding all the different artists and designers. It was just really fun. So we had a fantastic time like doing it, I guess. I heard you talk about failure as well. I heard you saying that uh, Tom Schumacher told you to go watch flops because you learn more from failure and flops than you do from winning, you know, and, and picking the winner all the time. And we have that policy in our house too. My husband always says you have to fail fast, frequently, and originally and do it over and over again, because it's the only path to success is failure. And so t- tell me a little about how you see that. How do you see failure? And when did you adopt that whole philosophy? Yeah, I had a friend of mine who it was like a startup kind of person in um, San Francisco. And, and that was something that he had shared with me was just, you know, like he, he was very successful in this business he was running, but the one prior, like completely flopped. And yeah, I think you just, it's this like startup mentality and that's Broadway in general too, right? Every, Mm -hmm. every Broadway show is a startup. So, you know, you have to have this idea, believe in it, get other people to believe in it. So you're going to fail a lot of times before you succeed. Um, but yeah, that advice from Tom, and I, I love that you like actually listened to an interview I did that I said that. But yeah, that that advice was really good advice. So I find that the Broadway community, we probably are the most resilient because as you just mentioned, it really is starting an industry or a franchise every single time. You have to enter into it with the idea of this may not be successful, but that can't be the primary focus. You have to start every single time with wholeheartedly believing in the product, the show, but also being open to direction, criticism, re-examining, reassessing, starting again, even in the midst of the process up until you freeze the show opening night. Yeah. True collaboration. That's that's right. It's almost like a catch 22 that you have to be monstrously thick skinned, but completely open hearted and vulnerable in order for anything to completely succeed in this industry. And I think that idea of failure is always one of the voices in our head. Even if you get that bad review, even if it closes three months after, it's still a huge success because you set out with your mission and your goal and your true want, it came to fruition. It happened. The story was told and then you have to release it. And that um, is always such uh, magic to me that we have the wherewithal to keep doing it. It's so funny because as you were saying that, we were talking about that duality, right? Of being thick skinned, but also the necessity of a completely open heart and having Mm -hmm. the courage to share that. I thought that's parenthood. It's that duality of, you know, allowing your kid each stage, recognizing that they're not you and they're not always going to like you, right? The thick skin and all of that. But also you have to have a complete completely open heart and be willing to let it be broken into a million pieces or expand bigger than you ever dreamed it could be. And that's the whole thing about life. That's life. You have to have that duality constantly in your life, the balance between work and family, the balance between motherhood and self and individuality and, and the balance between your creativity and that business mind that we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's everything, that duality. I want to talk a little about the museum. It's such a massive undertaking. And I was curious how long it took you to get it on its feet, you know, from the moment you thought of the idea to the moment the doors opened. Uh, It was probably a little over five years. Wow. Uh, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who was like, why isn't there a Broadway museum? It's like, I don't know. (laughs) And never like thought that that would be something in my future, but also didn't feel qualified to be the person to do it either. Do you start with real estate? Do you start with collecting pieces? Where does one even begin to say, I'm going to have enough to open a museum? So just to go back a little bit. So my partner, Diane and I, uh, Diane Nicoletti, we went to college together. So we've been friends for 20 plus years. We've worked together when I was doing the staffing agency, basically like giving a lot of jobs to actors, you know, either between Broadway shows or 
as they're like auditioning or whatever it may be the case. And so we would do all of these different events. And so we worked together in that space. And then this conversation happened about like, why isn't there a Broadway museum? And we were talking about it and kind of this like light bulb moment went off and we were like, oh, what if you took the history, the content, you know, props, costumes, the things people expect to see in a Broadway museum, but you presented it in this way where our background was, the more like experiential, immersive, Instagrammable, interactive kind of way. And so what if you combine those two ideas? And then we just kind of started brainstorming and whiteboarding and I would go down to our office and we ended up settling around this idea of we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So had people not pioneered and broken ground and taken risks and, you know, been creative, we wouldn't have the art form we have today. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it through that lens, um, we're both technically on the cusp of being millennials. I guess we like look at the world maybe in whatever that perspective is. We just started looking at the history that way. We're like, oh, this is actually pretty fascinating. And as we were bringing like a team together and things, we had this as kind of our central idea of like the timeline. So when you get to the museums, you enter and exit through the gift shop, which is just open to the public. You check in. That sounds very Thomas Schumacher too. Buy your Lion King merchandise on the way in and on the way out. (laughs) (laughs) He's a smart guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you so you check in. We have like the giant Tony from the Tony uh-huh. Awards uh-huh. there. We have the great comet chandeliers that are that's our lighting in the in the retail store. So it like kind of screams Broadway. All the people who are working inside are all like aspiring actors and writers and employing all these people too at the same time, which is really yeah. great. And so you check in, you go through this kind of like backstage field. A lot of people don't know what it's like backstage and they kind of climb all the stairs and stuff. So you go, you end up on the third floor. We also have an elevator and um, ADA path, of course. But you end up on the third floor. You start in present day. We call it the Playbill Room, but it's everything that's currently running on Broadway that day. So a lot of people know the big hits, the big titles, but they don't realize that there are 41 theaters. and. Mm-hmm. Many different shows and different types of stories are being told every day. And then there's a brand ambassador who takes you into the next room. Um, It says on the wall, let's start at the very beginning. And you go in into the map room and in the map room, um, projection mapped onto this deconstructed cityscape, the story of the theaters in New York City comes to life. So the theaters in New York actually started in the financial district. So I had no idea. I know it's fascinating. So people settled um, downtown and then, you know, it basically migrated north um, and then Times Square and Broadway became what they are kind of more turn of the century. But um, yeah, went literally up Broadway. But why? Um, Why did it migrate north? um, It just got so like congested and so crowded. And so people needed more space and people started to discover and explore north. So Anyway, so it was first Longacre Square, got renamed Times Square. And then from there, you start walking the timeline of Broadway. So you're starting in the 1700s when that first performance, documented performance happened downtown. And then you go all the way to present day. So we have these kind of traditional timeline walls where you see plays, musicals, groundbreaking moments that happened, these milestone moments. There's a lot of like overlooked history, traditionally overlooked history that's included. You could spend... I mean, we say like between one and three hours at the museum. Some people take even longer. They just want to read every single word on the wall. But it's really cool to see because this like multi-generational like audience comes through. Let's say there's a family and, you know, the grandmother is like, I saw my first show. This was it. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of like clock your first Broadway experience as you're going through the timeline and then can tell these stories to their grandchild. And then later down the road, their grandchild's like, oh, that's the first one I saw. Mm -hmm. So there's like these really lovely like storytelling moments that happen, you know, as people are going through. And so you're walking the timeline. And then when you get to some of the shows that have really changed the landscape of Broadway, brought in a new audience, changed the art form, pushed it forward. Um, there's a room dedicated to in an exhibit where an artist or a Broadway designer was commissioned to basically create that room. 
So the first one is Zigfield Follies. Beautiful. It's like all these like crystals from Swarovski and feathers and things. It's it's amazing. And it's coupled with the history. So we have all of these artifacts on display. We have these two original Zigfield Follies costumes, which you think of Zigfield Follies in black and white because that's all the photography we've ever seen. But the colors are vibrant and rich and they're stunning. After the Zigfield Follies, then there's another timeline. Then there's Showboat, which is a paper artist um, from France who came and created this paper art installation made out of the pages of the script. And then with wow. the, like the words dance to life off the page. So it's evocative of like why it was so important in our history, but it's coupled mm-hmm. with, you know, Rebecca Luker's costume from the revival of Showboat wow. and a bunch of, you know, archival things from, from the original as well. So each each exhibit that is around a show is kind of that two-part idea. So it's, you know, either interactive, immersive, Instagrammable, you know, one of those experiential buzzwords that everyone loves, or <laughs> it's coupled with um, the history and the artifacts and copy about why it's being showcased in this way. And some of them you like dance along in West Side Story and you can do the choreography and <laughs> it's Robbie Fairchild doing cool and Tenere Vasquez doing America. Like it, it's so fun, but you're inside Doc's Drug Store and Anna Luisa's designed it, you know? So anyway, yeah, there, I can't each one is it's thrilling. I know, I know. And so finally you get to present day, you actually knock on the stage door and then you end up going backstage into how do you make a Broadway show? What are all these different roles you could have? You don't have to be the actor. You could do so many different things. So your daughter is going to love it. She's going to um, love it. How has there never been a Broadway museum? Uh, it, it's shocking. Uh, I know. I, it's I, almost I shocking. Like, I can't even believe all of these incredible artifacts have just been collecting dust somewhere and there's never been a museum. I'm yeah, so happy but, you did this. Um, and I feel like every school that comes into the city needs to get to this museum, walk through, and whether they spend the hour or the three hours, the amount of knowledge and just sort of sparking that flame again, because we know being in the audience is one thing, interacting is another thing. And so when you get to be that close to items or storytelling or choreography, it only makes the whole seeing Broadway shows all the more heightened and exciting. And Julie, how do you go about acquiring these one-of-a-kind pieces? Is it a letter written? Is it by knowing someone who actually owns these pieces and then they're lent to you? What does that look like? Each piece in the museum has kind of come about a, in a bit of a different way. There are some places that we've, you know, Goodspeed has an incredible costume collection, um, mm. PDF. Uh, their costume collection is incredible. The public has been amazing at preserving things along the way. Um, so we've been working with that. And then some is just from individuals. Some things we've acquired, but most things are on loan. We have Andre DeShield's suit that he wore in Hades Town, And that mm. came about because I ran into Mara, who produced it on the street. Right. And we're chatting out the museum. And I was like, oh yeah, he's leaving the show soon. Would you be open to us displaying his costume. And she's like, sure. So, you know, each one kind of came about in, in a bit of a different way, but we have curators. They're like part of the the community. And so it's, you know, asking and knowing where things might be. And a lot has come about even after we've opened, people are reaching out now and they're like, oh, I have things. I have things. Like, yeah. I was one of those yeah. people. <laughs> I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. So I probably have to check with Susan Hilferty. So when I took my final bow in Wicked in 2008, I swiped my second act, (laughs) Alphaba Hat. And why I wanted that, you know, of course, would I have taken the dress if I could shove it in a tote bag? I would have. But when Susan Hilferty was designing, she wanted to use, of course, a lot of blacks for Alphaba, the Wicked Witch. And there was already so many licensing and copyrighted things from The Wizard of Oz Mm -hmm. and The Wicked Witch that we know from the MGM and the book. And they said, you can't use black. And so the hat itself is navy blue, this very cool, like um, deep, deep purple and black mixed together. It's almost like 
dots in the mm. fabric. And to see it up close, it's really very special to see how she was able to design something that is so recognizable, but so creative to go about these really tight restrictions mm. that were, you know, forced upon her. It's like so, pointillism with fabric. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's mm. pointillism meets uh, almost like an animal print. Mm. So for, you know, spectators to come through and to see the, uh, ingenious way, the fabric that she chose, the the hand detail that's there. So that offer still stands if 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 that's something you would like. <laughs> I think I think that would be incredible. How often does the museum change out exhibits or have special exhibits to draw on people that have, you know, for a second view or a third view or even a fourth, you know, I think I'll be there probably four times because I love stuff like this. But how often will you be changing out and putting in special exhibits and things like that? Really great question. We have a special exhibit room that is going to rotate a couple times a year, not on a very specific mm -hmm. calendar, but around different events and things. Things are on loan, so they'll like change in and out over time. There are also like quite a few that we ended up not being able to include quite yet. So those pieces will change. We also have a rehearsal studio so we can do classes and, you know, panel discussions and all of that. In, this in space that. sounds remarkable. How did you find the space? I know. Tell us where you're located. I can, I, in my mind's eye, I can see it. I can yeah. see it. We're 145 West 45th Street. It's 45th. Well, Don't so laugh, right. but I go to that little Starbucks right across the street from your museum. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I go there a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're right next door to the Lyceum also, which is a great story just oh, because that it's is. continuously operating theater. So that's kind of a fun that we share a wall with, with the Lyceum. Yeah, we're right off of Times Square. Um, but how did you find yeah. and acquire that space? That couldn't have been um, easy. Once we had like the concept and enough of the idea, we took it around to kind of the heads of state in Broadway, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the, the gatekeepers. Then, yeah, we went around to the theater owners and the Broadway League, the American Theater Wing, Playbill, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, the licensing companies. And um, we went to a bunch of people just to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. What do you think? You know, because we wanted to make sure everyone was open to the idea of it existing. Um, and, you know, there's been ideas of a Broadway museum in the past. We're not the first, but none of them ever got off the ground for whatever reason. And then we just started and we were like looking and we looked at every space that we possibly could in Times Square that was more than 15,000 feet and a square feet and um, less than, I don't know, 40,000. We don't want to bite off too much more than we could chew. It used to be an Irish bar. Mm. Uh, it's called Olenny's. Oh my gosh. Yes. But unfortunately yes. through COVID. So um oh. yeah, we did a gut renovation. So there you are. But it's kind of the perfect location. Yeah. yeah it's incredible. It's great. So we have the cellar, which has like coat check, back of house, um, lockers so people can put their stuff and don't have to carry it with them um, as they go through. And then we have three floors of the building. 26,000 square feet. I always signed the lease in August of 2021. And then the work started. The landlord did a bunch of work. Then we started our work, May or June, something like that. And then we you got it done to sign yeah. in 2021 and to be where you are now. Is incredible. You got it done. Yes. I've spoken with people that have had kitchen renovations that took longer than this. <laughs> We spoke about how not theater is fleeting, but you can open and three months later, you know, it's it's not gone, but it's no longer playing eight times a week. This is something that's quite a legacy. It's it's gonna be there and it's gonna last and it's telling all of our stories. It's kind of the the perfect nucleus for all of these different things that we as a Broadway community have created. And you've been able to crystallize it in, what is it? You said 12,000 square feet? 26,000 no, 26, 26, yeah. 26, square feet. That feels so beautiful to me that a legacy for an industry that's constantly in flux and ebbing and flowing and here sometime and, and gone the next 
the stories are remaining in this beautiful place. What a tribute. Thank you. It actually gets me a little misty-eyed, quite frankly. My hope is, you know, as people come to New York to see a Broadway show, they come to the museum also. It's like a good add-on to their experience. But like we were saying before, it kind of just enriches. It doesn't take away from going to Broadway. There's nothing like seeing a Broadway show, but it just helps to understand a bit more, um, to give kind of that perspective. You know, we want people to have a lot of fun and then learn something along the way too. This museum is very similar to what you were talking about before, that it is like a child, I think. So, you know, we birthed it and then now we have to raise it and nurture that along the way. We're going to launch um, some programming next year where we'll do classes and things in the space too, which will be really great. And also when when someone does buy a ticket, um, a portion of all the ticket sales goes to Broadway Cares Equity Fights Aid. So mm-hmm. I don't want to ruin it, but, but maybe I will a little bit. When you are walking through the timeline, um, when we get to the 80s, we pause. The idea that we're in the story that we're telling, you know, that we stand on the shoulders of those who came before we lost so many people in the theater community and had that not happened, the future would have looked really different. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have um, a red ribbon installation that's on the wall that has the names of people we lost to AIDS or AIDS-related illnesses in the theater community. That's Stop uh, Broadway Cares has loaned us their AIDS quilt. So that's the quilt. Awesome. And you can see everyone's, it's from, you know, it, it, it's very, very moving. Um, there's a quote from Tony Kushner from Angels in America also there. It just kind of centers you in this, this idea that, you know, would have been very different had that not happened. We wanted to make sure that we paused there so everyone yeah. could take a they pause for to. remembrance. And now it's time for the five questions. If you could be instantly brought to another era, which one would you pick? Uh, maybe like the... 40s and Hollywood and all that mm-hmm. glamour. That's mine. That's ours yeah. too. Yeah. That's what we felt too. <laughs> if we were to walk into your closet, is there a garment or a piece that you will never get rid of because it holds just too many memories? You guys Speaking ask- of museums. I know you guys ask really good questions. I, I think I need more coffee. <laughs> 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 a, a jacket, a piece of jewelry, a watch from your grandma, anything. Oh, uh, well. Yeah, not in my closet, but I wear every day. Um, I have my grandmother's engagement ring. Um, It was reset with an Alexanderite and then a ring from um, the 70s from my mom that I have borrowed and never given back. That's very cool with a a topaz. So I get Mm. a lot of comments on it, but I wear them every day. And I think it kind of helps ground me a little bit too, right? Yeah. Those that came before you. That's That's right. right. You're in jail. It's your last meal. What's it going to be? Oh, I would have a grilled cheese. Oh, you know what I do? You like pickles, Julie? I don't, I, no, I'm not a no. pickle. Do you like green apples? I do. Have you ever done the grilled cheese green apple sandwich? Oh, I have had that. Yeah. Oh, that for me. And I just recently tried the grilled cheese with pickle slices on there, and that really I enjoy pickles. But oh my. God, it was so I good love during pickles. the winter. Months. I would love that. Do yeah, it. brie, brie, and uh, green apple. Forget it. Forget it's about it. So delicious. My mouth is watering. I know. Right. I'm hungry. <laughs> All right. What question are we on? Now I'm starving. We're now on and question. I need coffee. We're now on question four. <laughs> okay. uh, if you could have any superpower, uh, it could be worldly or otherworldly. What would it be? I don't know. I kind of would be interested to see into the future a little bit, but mm, but that yeah, also comes with like a lot of things that are maybe not great. So, um, but oh. so it might be along that like time travel kind of idea. Yeah, but okay. you'd be the person to fix it. You'd be the person to go. I know it's coming next, so I'm going to fix this before <laughs> it happens because there's that gap there that you'll yep. fix. Yeah, I'm going to bridge perfect. the gap. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if these if these questions tripped you up, wait till you hear the finale. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we ask this one of every single guest. If you were a nail polish color, what color would you be? And what would that cheeky little name be? Oh, I love that you asked that so much, actually. So in my like 
staffing agency days. So I worked with Essie um, on some some things for Fashion Week, and I got to meet her. And I don't know if you guys have, but she's very fabulous. I've never met her. No, showed up in this like gray fur coat, and like she just immaculately dressed. And my friend Nicole and I, um, we would you know weekly get manicures and always choose the color based on our mood or whatever was happening during the week. And so we were like talking about that with her and how do you come up with the names of um, these different nail polish colors? And she just had like a a little notepad in the middle of the night. She'd like wake up and something would be in her head and Santa Pay would come out. So that's Uh so cool. So I love that so much. My friend growing up would always call me the nucleus because I really like to like connect people and bring them together. Um, so if there was some sort of cheeky way to use nucleus into the color of the nail polish, I don't know what that would be, but, but, but what's your favorite color? So what, what's, what's the color? color? I think it would, I think it would actually just be like a really simple, um, neutral kind of color, nothing too crazy, but like one that San Tropez one is in my head, which is like a very light beige-ish kind of color mm-hmm. or not quite New the- York nucleus. Ooh, there it is. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Really nice. Bessie, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm on to something. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. And thank you for asking me to be part of it. Great. I'll be in New York in January. I will be in touch. I'm bringing oh, yeah. all my girlfriends. Please oh, come. that'll be so fun. Yeah, it'll be great. Please come. I'll be and one of those people that wants to sit in there for four hours and in two hours in, they'll be like, can we go? Can we please Excuse go? I'll me, be like, yes. I'll meet you wherever you're going. I need to read every wall. We have, we even have like these like steps where they can hang out in the, in the gift shop that kind of are reminiscent of 42nd Street. So are there oh, cocktails? so fun. Are there cocktails served there? Because that's what they'll be wanting to do on their New York vacation trip. Yes. Not at the moment. Uh-huh. But- <laughs> Damn. And now, here's what struck a chord with us. Ever since she said the phrase when she was talking about the museum and she said, let's start at the very beginning. Through this entire interview, all you heard Julie Andrews, didn't you? Start at the very beginning. I'm like, oh my God. But that might be in my head. Listen to me, though. That might be the genius of Julie Boardman that she planted that seed, but she didn't explain. Mm -mm. And so now we're already on the journey (sighs) of theater, right? It's those sort of phrases that once you plant a certain phrase, it stays with you. And then you carry it through the entire interview or the entire time (laughs) that you're in the museum. I literally was singing in my head the whole time. Right. No, that's the genius of her. You walk through Disney and they're pumping out popcorn smells and and cotton candy smells because they want you to buy all of the junk. So So with Julie, I spoke about, you know, my Elphaba hat, which I'm hoping this many years later, I don't get in trouble for. But if you were to walk onto any sort of set, it doesn't have to be a show that you were in, but what's something that you would love to have picked up or have in your home as a reminder of something beautiful from a theater experience? I would want Bernadette's Paracel from Sunday in the Park with George. (gasps) I'm such a nerd right now. I just got full body chills. I just got full body chills. I have tears in my eyes. Parasol. Why are we the biggest geeks? We're such nerds. It's pathetic. I'm such a nerd. Oh my gosh, that's fabulous. My mind went to um, uh, Patti Lapone Evita dress. The white white dress. Of course. Wouldn't that be something? Of course you want a whole dress. Uh, yeah, I want the whole damn dress. But I'd bring it home and be like, is this for a mini person? That's another thing that's shocking to me, you know, not to refer to all these other places, but you do. You walk into somewhere and you're like, that's Ethel Merman's dress from Annie Get Your Gun. How it looks is- like it's for an eight-year-old. Yeah. How, how did so Elvis small? fit into that? Like Elvis was teeny. It's wild. (laughs) I know. Anytime you go to the Met and they have like a costume, you know, exhibit, you do walk in and go, 
oh, please tell me this has been altered. That cannot be her waist. This cannot be her waist. And then I just get upset. And what do I do? Probably get a side of fries. Yeah. And, and yeah. a hot fudge sundae. Yeah. That's right. What's the point? That's why if I, I have would to work prefer- this card and I can't have that waist. I'm just going to eat the hot yeah. fudge sundae. That's, That's why hats and shoes and purses, bags, yep. these are the best things to show. Yeah. Closet full of bags. Yep. That's right. <laughs> Uh, maybe just because of where I am now playing the baker's wife. Do you know that quirky hat that Joanna Gleason wore as the baker's yes. wife? It was like, that was, that was, that was a fantastic and, and really unique design that I would like to have something like that. Yeah. Maybe the green baby from Wicked as gross oh. and kind of crazy as it is. Oh, that'd be so fun. It would or, be really fun. Or the, you know, the green, um, the green potion. In that little potion. Oh, bottle. sure. That would be fun to have on your. Well, I can oh, make I that just for go you, honey. On and on. I mean, and I on. could send that to you now and be like, "Happy Valentine's Day." You have one? Well, no, but I could whip that up real quick. I'm yeah, sure it's a just a one that was on the stage. That was you wouldn't know the difference. By- I'll spit on oh, it oh, and send it to you. Look, I'll sing "Defying Gravity" on it. You'll have my DNA, <laughs> and it would be. <laughs> And also throughout this entire interview, you know, it was, I could see 12-year-old Stephanie at that museum. I could see 22-year-old Stephanie at that museum. I could see 48-year-old Stephanie at that museum. And how I would have absorbed and loved, you know, at every stage. To be able to kind of see a mock of what a true backstage of Broadway looks like. Yeah. That's all I wanted at yeah. 12 and 20 years old. It's, it's you know? going to be magical. I cannot wait to go and see it. The other thing she said that really stuck with me when she said, you know, you're on the right path in New York when you're walking down the street and you bump into all these people, you know? Yeah. I have this story during the time when I decided I was going to get married and, and come up to Boston to raise a family. I, was with a bunch of friends. And I mean, when I first moved to New York, I knew one person. I had one friend and we were roommates and I was like afraid to leave my apartment. And by the time I left, I was walking down the street with a couple of friends. We were going to go to dinner, sort of a little farewell dinner. So we were just kind of walking down Broadway, heading to a restaurant. And by the time we got to the restaurant, there were about 25 of my friends that we had just kind of gathered as we was bumped this, into Was them. this Ninth Avenue or 8th Avenue? One Eighth of the Avenue. two? Yeah, Eighth Avenue. And I just kept yeah. bumping into all my friends. Oh, come to dinner with us. Come. By the time we got there, there were 25 of us. And I thought, oh my gosh. Like to me, it felt like I made it. I survived mm-hmm. New York from the day I arrived when I knew one person and I was literally afraid to take the bus. And now the day I'm leaving to go have my family and move on to this new stage of my life. Yeah. Right. And we're all sitting at this restaurant just you have a community uh, celebrating and it felt like a real theater community. And, and even though I've been away from it, I've kept those ties because those are my people. Like, yeah. I just get theater people. I love them and I understand them. We're also weird and quirky and I just, I just vibe with them. And, and when she said that, I thought, Oh my God, that's so true. When you, when you want so badly to be a part of that community and literally you find yourself just walking down the street and gathering your friends. It's like, damn, I love New York. I now New York. I want to pose this to you. I'm going to go a little deep because oh I have been thinking about this. No, truly going back to what she said, you know, when you're on the right path, you start running into the people that, um, can help you meet that need or are on that same path. Here's my question, listeners too. Do you change your mindset and then all of a sudden you recognize the things you need? Or do you believe that the universe puts these things in your path that help get you there? Because I can think of something, right? Something random. And all of a sudden I see it on a bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I see it in a paragraph of the book I'm reading. All of a sudden I hear a conversation at a restaurant that applies to what I am thinking of. It's happening to me right now. In fact, Seb and I, Seb is of Uruguayan descent on his father's side. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that country a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And we talk about, you know, and literally, it will be The Daily, which is a podcast that I listen to that happens every day through the New York Times. 
huge op-ed about uh, climate and ecological matters and our sort of carbon footprint and how Uruguay is doing it right. Mm. I'm listening to Audible, uh, uh, many drivers, short stories, and her life, essentially. She has this entire chapter of her sister moving to Uruguay and her going there and spending the winter slash summer, because their winter is our summer and vice versa, Mm -hmm. in Punta del Este and La Barra, which is in Uruguay. Uruguay is everywhere right now. And you have been talking nonstop lately about where you want to end up. That's right. So my question is, because I have opened up my mind to this new idea and this place that perhaps we may go to or or end up at or whatever that looks like, am I recognizing the signs, signs that would have already been there? Or is God in the universe placing these in front of me to say, I'm talking to you. Are you listening? I'm talking to you. I think it's both. I really do think it's both. I think the signs are always there, but we have to be open to looking and seeing them and hearing them in our life. Those signs would be there. That many drivers still would have told that story. And, and, you know, but what the, led me to, she's not, it was one of those because, things where that's I, that's what I mean. You're just, you're open and you get in the flow of life and you start to listen to the whispers and the instincts that go, Hey, that would be an interesting book. Download it. Whereas other times you just go, oh, I I don't want to listen to Mini Driver's book, right? But you start to listen to the whispers. You start to listen to the little nudges. The book is always there. The the willingness to follow the little instinct and listen to the little whisper to download the book isn't. And so you have to be open. You have to be willing to just try stuff and and believe. I Mm -hmm. think it's both. And I know when I'm cut off to it too. I know when I'm in a phase where I'm a little cut off from it and I'm not open to it and I can mm. feel it. And, and that really just says it's not right for you or you're not ready or, you or, know. Or I'm in what I call my winter, which is the downtime, which is the quiet time. Sometimes you have mm. to have the quiet time in order to be able to receive later. That's how I see it. I sort of see my my moods and my life in like seasonal phases where there's time to grow, there's time to flourish, there's time to to wind down, there's time to hibernate. And and all my cycles sort of feel that way to me. And but the other thing that I think is interesting is you have to be able to distinguish the signs that are saying stop stop, you're going the wrong way and the time where it's p- time to just push through to the good part. Right. 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 So well, there are warning signs and stop signs, and there are yield signs. Right. Right. And this is different. They're very. And this different. is what we kind of just went through—a similar thing, you and I, in yes. this situation that we had. Yes. We, we got to the end, and we were like, "This is ridiculous. Should we just not do this?" And then, what it really was was just that final push over the thing, and you got there, and then you go, "Oh my goodness!" It was just that final yield. There was something else we had to do before we pushed to the end. Do you have that? quote that you sent me literally from the universe the day that we were feeling gosh is the world telling us to yield or stop or move through you sent me something and it was like a a horoscope for that that literal day and you said the the universe is speaking to us do you remember oh no let me look it up okay okay i found it i found it it's on insta um the name i follow this woman on instagram and the name of her instagram page is moon omens i love her stuff i i look at it every day anyway it said when you are in the middle of your journey and you have not reached your destination when you've endured long periods of waiting and have unanswered questions trust trust that your journey is growing you in ways unseen and your process is working for you even when you don't understand Love it. And I think it's really true. We can't always understand. And we're not supposed to, I think, understand everything all the time. And speaking of things that I do not understand, when she talked about being on the cusp of being a millennial. Yes. Uh huh. I'm very confused by all that. What are we? Are we Gen X or Oh, golly. What are I we? can't. I don't know I mean, any of that. I, 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 I don't know. I think the obviously the millennials are when you were at a particular age, the 2000, right? So so Seb, Seb and Veeves are millennials. No, Seb is not a millennial, nor is Veeves. Veeves is a generation like 
Z. There's a whole, hold on. We're going to look this up because this is worth talking about. Hold on. Um, Okay. Right. So the millennials, it is relating to or denoting people born between the early 1980s and the late 1990s. Okay. So that's not not us. Um, Then there is, hold on, Gen Z. Oh, interesting. Generation Z, colloquially known as (laughs) Zoomers, is the Western demographic cohort succeeding millennials and preceding Generation Alpha. Oh, Lord, we've just opened up a box of worms. We need a museum just for all the different (laughs) generations and these hip names for when you were born. There was a whole time frame where if you went online and said something that millennials or Gen Zs didn't like, they'd be like, okay, boomer. And boomers, my understanding, were the ones that were born like after World War II. And a couple people started to refer to me as a baby boomer. And I was like, whoa, 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 you better just hold off. I am certainly not a baby boomer. Well, I think boomers were in the 50s. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even still. Yeah. Hello. That ain't me, yo. So we're Gen X. Gen X is the early 1960s into the late 70s. Yep. So that's And what is, what are we again? X, Gen X? Gen X. Gen X. Okay. What you have a relaxed approach, concentrating on quality of life. Yeah, I can say that now. I don't know if that was really who I was in my 20s or 30s. So who's Generation Y? Was there a Gen Y or did we just skip right over that? Let me Google. Generation Y or the millennials. Oh, they're the millennials. Uh Uh-huh. Digital natives. Okay, so they were born into like the Facebook computer, all that era. 80, early 80s to 1994. Yeah. Technology is a part of their daily life. It's all exhausting and all it does is make me feel old. I know. That's why we enjoy, let's start at the very beginning. That feels like home to us. Oh my God. (laughs) See? All right. On that note. All right. Goodbye. I love you so much. I'll see you soon. I love you. Goodbye. Start at the very beginning. Somebody get a hook. (laughs) Stages podcast is produced and edited by me, Mary Lee Fairbanks and Stephanie J. Block. Thank you to Allison Arns, our booking agent, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, and Tina Wargo, our social media manager. Original music by Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy. Thank you for subscribing, following, rating, and telling others about this very special podcast. And we'll see you soon. 